Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guests are Allison Smart, Executive Director, and Spencer Glendon, Founder at Probable Futures. Probable Futures is not a business. It's an unconventional initiative that brings together leaders across culture, business, technology, and design in collaboration with scientists at the renowned Woodwell Climate Research Center. They're committed to and guided by their shared set of core principles. Now, Dr. Glendon has an interesting background in that he spent 18 years as a macro analyst, partner, and director of investment research at Wellington Management, an investment management firm with more than a trillion in client assets. In that role, he spent several years focusing on models in climate science and finance and understanding the gaps between the two disciplines and their practitioners. What he found was that the models were surprisingly accurate, yet they weren't getting utilized that much. Well, why is that? Well, that's what Dr. Glendon set out to find out. And what he uncovered was that it wasn't so much that the data wasn't there, but that it wasn't in a format that could be easily understood and utilized in a wide range of circumstances for a wide range of stakeholders. So that's what Probable Futures set out to build. They are essentially taking the data and the models and providing great UX and visualization personalization, customization, and helping make that data more useful to more people. We cover a lot in this episode, including the climate journeys of both Allison and Spencer. We talk about what motivated them to do the work that they're doing, how they got going, what it was that led them to realize that probable futures deserve to exist, and then how they set out to shape it, what they've done so far, how they measure success, what kinds of stakeholders they're serving and where the data is resonant the most. And we also just have a great discussion about the theory of change, the nature of the climate problem, some of the barriers holding us back, 
what changes could accelerate progress, and of course, where Probable Futures fits in. I really enjoyed this one, and I'm excited for you to listen to it. Spencer, Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Well, I'm so excited to have you both. We were chit-chatting a little bit before we hit record, but the work that you're doing with Probable Futures is so important. And your journeys for doing this work seem to have some similarities to mine, although coming from very different places. And so I've been excited about having this discussion for a while. Us too. Thanks for inviting us. Why don't we jump right into it? What is Probable Futures? Probable Futures, I'm the executive director of Probable Futures, and it's an educational initiative that offers useful tools to visualize climate change along with stories and insights to help people understand what those changes mean. So probablefutures.org hosts a freely accessible digital platform that aims to serve as a, a global utility that can help individuals and organizations and governments to understand what is coming everywhere on earth in terms of heat, lack of cold, humidity, rainfall, drought, wildfire. The data and maps offered on probablefutures.org are are global in scope, but they have the ability to scale down to a resolution that's really usable, useful for communities and organizations. And to do all of this, we bring together leaders across culture, technology, business, design, in collaboration with really world-class scientists at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. The way we think about it is twofold. The first is often the future is portrayed either as basically like today, but with electric vehicles and modernist architecture, or as Mad Max. And neither of those two visions of the future are very useful, nor are they likely. We are no longer in the past. No matter how much modernist architecture and how many electric cars we build, it will not be the past climate. We will have a different climate. And that climate is something we need to be prepared for, both physically, but also culturally. And the cultural part of it is as important as the physical. I'm sure we'll talk about both. But we wanted to stress, and the reason to call this probable future is, is there's a range of likely outcomes. And that range needs to be the range that we engage with, both in terms of being prepared for the outcomes we can't avoid, but also avoiding the outcomes for which we really couldn't prepare. And so we think about it as as this ranges. We think a lot in ranges and probabilities as opposed to specific forecasts of when things will happen. These are scenarios that are extremely likely, extremely robust scientifically, and they should be vivid and resonant in a way that makes it easy for people to say, oh, that is different than the world I live in, and I need to be prepared for that, or, or, and, or, that's so different from the world I live in that we need to avoid it, because it would be extraordinarily difficult to live in those terms. And so it's making physical this future that people often refer to in statistical terms, one and a half, two, two and a half, three degrees C, are these small sounding numbers that don't really sound that different. And so probable future is a way of understanding, A, how do we get to those numbers? What do they mean? But B, what will it physically be like if we are at those levels of warming in a way that we think is clarifying and hopefully helpful to decision-making? So if I'm hearing right, it almost sounds like taking maybe what's on a, a spreadsheet and abstract and hard to really internalize and almost bring it to life, both in terms of the detail of what those numbers would bring about in terms of 
the world that we do understand, but also is is there a visual component as well where where it's not just saying so or having a bulleted list, but it's actually kind of bringing it to life graphically? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, go ahead, Allison. Why don't you talk a little bit about the visual and I'll talk a little bit about this idea of a utility. Sure. Climate science is really best understood through maps. It is climate change is a physical phenomenon. It's happening in the real world. One of the things that Spencer and I would talk about a lot in the early days is how climate science is portrayed, that often we see confusing graphics with RCP trajectories and graphs, but that it is this thing that we can, we have the ability to understand it because it's something in the physical world and we live in the physical world every single day. So really we saw that climate change was intuitive. Anyone could really understand it and that we could present it in ways that would help that understanding, help build that understanding and that literacy. So we put a lot of work into building the maps in a way that would be intuitive and they are really geared towards the average person. To give some background, so 10 years ago, I was working in finance in one of the largest uh, investment institutions in the world. And I had developed a practice of I was essentially given a lot of latitude at the firm. And I was, ran a little, what you might call a little one-man skunk works at the firm, working on projects that I got to define. And the way I defined projects at that time was based on a long history of working with experts. And what I discovered about expertise over many years was that expertise in the Western world, in the modern world, is divided up into small slices that are quite orthodox. So to make the world tractable, humans post the Enlightenment divided the world up into very small slices, ever smaller slices, in fact. The physics department is now at MIT has physicists who can't really talk to each other about their work because even their specialty is so deep. And so I developed a practice for sniffing out topics in the context of an investment firm, actually, that actually nobody worked on because they didn't fit in any slice. And so there were other topics I worked on with a lot of success, others I worked on with less success. But I started working on climate change a little more than 10 years ago because A, it seemed like it might be big, B, it didn't really seem to have a price, and C, it didn't fit into anybody's job, which meant that it could matter a lot and nobody would work on it. And so I was in an institution that had hundreds and hundreds of researchers and nobody worked on climate change. And when I started paying more attention to it, I realized people talk funny when they when climate change comes up, they get squeamish. They use language that they wouldn't otherwise use. Like, I don't believe it. But in, in a finance setting, you, you would normally say, well, what is, I don't care what you believe. What are the odds of it? What is the likelihood of it? As opposed to, I, I rule it out completely. Anybody who says it has a zero probability because I don't like it would lose their license, essentially, to be part of a conversation about an investment. But that was okay with climate change, to just rule it out and, and leave it alone. And those signals made me think, there's something interesting here. Let me see if I can get at it. And so I started reading science journals from the 70s and 80s, which is my sort of odd practice. I don't read newspapers. I read science journals, books, and magazines. As one does, right? I mean, that's what I do when I learn about something new. I just go find the journals from the 70s and 80s. <laughs> so I found these journals from the 70s and 80s, and I was astonished to find how good they were. 
how clear they were, how many predictions there were in them that were accurate. And I was working in high finance where people use models that if they're slightly better than terrible, they make you rich. And so you could have a model of interest rates or of currencies. And if it's right 60-ish percent of the time, you're George Soros. And I was finding these models that had provided speculative forecasts based on what humans would do from the late 70s and early 80s that had proven to be not only extremely accurate, but framed with a kind of uncertainty that also was tractable. Like the range is this range, and that range will extend over time, but this is roughly what we should expect. Even today, that range is still the range. So if you uh, talk about what people expect, it's basically the same as they had in the 70s and 80s. So I had this insight that I'm working in an industry with mediocre models at best and lots of, frankly, just dart throwing as a practice. And here are these models that are really good and nobody's using them. And they are truly about the future, which is what finance should be interested in. So I would start these projects without telling anybody I was going to work on them to see if I could find something. But the first email I sent to the firm where I worked was just called Unused Models. And in it, I said, I have these models. And these models have been running since the early 80s. Let me show you the results and look how good they've been. But I stripped out all the labeling identifiers. So you didn't know what they were of. It didn't say CO2 or temperature. It just said, here are the models. Here's the fan chart they produce. And here's where the data has gone. Do you want to know what they are? And they were models of temperature, of sea ice, of sea level rise, of intensity of storms. And I and people are like, yeah, that's like those models are so much better than my models. Tell me what they are. And I said, well, they're they're climate science models. And for most people, the reaction was, well, that's a dirty trick. I was so interesting that the reaction was negative when, in fact, I said, I, you now have the ability to know something about the future that's just lying around that nobody's using. That's that's mana. That is like you know a wonderful gift. But I came to realize it was hard for people to conceive of how to use this information. So I had good access to great investors and prominent people and CEOs. And so I just started asking them, is climate science useful to you? And everyone said no. And I said, well, how do you know it's not useful? Have you asked a question about climate science? And no one had ever asked a question. And I realized I needed to find scientists who would be willing to answer questions if I could get them generated by other people. If I could find question people who are willing to engage enough to ask questions, could I find scientists who would help us find the answers? And so that's how I found the Woodwell Climate Research Center at the time known as the Woods Hole Research Center, um, because it was a group of practical scientists who were world-class experts and also wanted to collaborate. And so I started talking, Allison actually made the introduction, Jason, you've talked in the past some about philanthropy. Part of what I did was start giving money in medium-sized chunks to organizations so that I could be noticed and have access to leadership and talk to them more easily. And so Allison followed up after something I had done and brought uh, Phil Duffy. And so Allison and Phil Duffy and I had a meeting. Phil Duffy, who's been on your podcast, I believe. He has. Phil's great. Yes. And so Phil, who's currently in the White House, but is uh, will soon return back to being the president of the, Wood of the Woodwell Climate Research Center, we had a meeting. And I said, here's what I'm interested in. Here are all the papers I've read. Here are the people I'd like to meet. And he helped facilitate introductions. But in particular, could we use climate science to ask practical questions? And he said, sure, we could. And I said, well, has it been done? He says, not really. 
And I said, why do you think it's not been done? And he said, well, part of the reason is it's actually not that hard. And I realized that one of the biases of science is to keep pushing the envelope, keep looking for the incremental insight. But the application of known things in the real world isn't the job description of anybody at a research university. And so we had to find a way to bridge basically the science and culture. And so Allison was uh, ideal for that and really uh, helped make this happen. So we started a project of bringing together people. I was able to coax some people who didn't think they wanted to do this, but also identify people who were interested in this, some of them in finance and a group of them actually from McKinsey to start asking questions that the Woodwell team could provide answers for. And then I was like, look, if the answers, if after we get the answers, you don't care, that's fine. Like now we've, we've had an honest conversation. But the result after every question was, oh my God, I had no idea. I had no idea that this was that important. I had no idea this was so valuable. I had no idea this was knowable. And part of what came across was nobody really makes decisions based on average atmospheric temperature. But those articles from the 70s and 80s, the testimony from George Woodwell, who's the founder of the Woodwell Research Center, to US Congress in the early 80s, says, here are the things that are going to happen with extremes, with more drought in dry places and more intense rainfall in wet places. Here are like a whole list of things that would start happening. And that list has been perfectly accurate. And that list is super useful. That list is very insightful. It's not like abstract average temperature, and it's not 2100, it's now. And so we thought there needs to be a way to take this data that actually already was theoretically public, but nobody knew how to get access to, make it public, make it accessible, make it a utility for everybody. And I'll get a little bit to one of well, some of the insights around it, but the idea was we need to create a tool that encourages people to start asking their own questions of climate science to start imagining, oh, I care about this thing, no matter what my narrow specialty is, no matter what my job is or occupation or way of moving in the world, and no matter where I am, I need to be more aware of the physical world that I depend on and how it might change. And so we built something that could be a prompt to ask questions and a tool for answering those questions without saying to people, here are the answers up front, but instead, Here's a way to start asking those questions and bring climate into your world. Give an example of where this has gone for the people who've really dug in. So I collaborate on a pro bono basis with institutions when they're willing to really take responsibility and make their work public. So I've helped McKinsey with a lot of work that they've made public. And the folks at McKinsey's now say climate needs to be thought of like information and money. It's part of everything. And it's at the C-suite level in an organization like the ones McKinsey would advise. It is involved in every decision you make, and you need to bring it into that kind of awareness. It doesn't belong in some small ghetto in an organization, and it doesn't just belong in the domain of scientists. You need a literacy and an awareness and the ability to interrogate climate. And so we built a tool that would enable that, whether what you're interested in is planning the sewer system for your town or understanding the fire risk where you are, or understanding the health risks posed by changes in temperature or changes in agriculture. And so every aspect of life has questions it could ask, and nobody had really been asking those questions. And that's the goal of Probable Futures, is to be complementary 
to whatever it is people are doing in their their slice of life, as we would say. There are some natural follow-ups there and a direction I know I want to go. And it's so important that we go there that I actually wrote it down and put a little asterisk. But before we do, what I'd love to do is, Spencer, that was really insightful in terms of your journey and what led you to doing this work at Probable Futures. Can we talk a little bit about your journey, Allison? I am, in a way, the embodiment of Probable Futures mission in that I uh, am a person who was not from the science space, but I came to a deep understanding about climate change and climate science eventually. Once I realized that I wouldn't be going to UConn and playing basketball, I actually went to school for music and theater. And I did that in Miami, Florida at the University of Miami. And while I was there, I lived through some major hurricanes. It was it was a very active four years as far as the hurricane season. While I was there, I lived through Hurricane Katrina, which then went on to New Orleans after that. I lived through Hurricane Wilma, which was hugely destructive. And so I really saw how powerful the climate could be. And I also saw how quickly systems can fall apart. Just how soon living without electricity and without other kinds of systems that we rely on just really kind of makes things fall apart very quickly. I also saw there during that time, the value of community and how important community is to resiliency. I mean, in those times, we were sharing food with neighbors and water and such. So that was a a pretty formative experience for me. And at the time, there was more about climate change that was coming out in the news, more that you could learn about. So at the same time, I was paying attention to climate change in the background. But I ultimately went on, I built my early career advancing great arts organizations, theaters, ballets, and eventually museums. And I did that by using some of my training and being a good storyteller. And so in that context, helping people to understand why the arts are so important to having a strong society. Then I was recruited to the Woodwell Climate Research Center. And I was recruited there uh, by Phil Duffy in part because I had, uh, because of my background in the arts. I mean, I found there that climate scientists really wanted help from people outside of their domain, who knew how to tell stories, who cared about aesthetics, and who were willing to learn. And that relationship ended up being really catalytic. I'm, I'm super proud of the work that Woodwell did during my time there and that is doing and that they're doing now as well. Proud of the partnerships that we built, some of which we did in partnership with Spencer, and really how we transformed the organization's ability to tell stories about the science that that they were doing. So when Spencer and I started collaborating at Woodwell, we really saw the parallels in each other's stories and that we were both people who had not been formally trained in climate science, but we had really both come to deeply understand it. And we had a good sense for the context of climate change. We had really both become translators and bridge builders between climate science and other parts of culture. At the time, as Spencer mentioned, very few people and very few industries were actually using the insights of climate science. And then he saw really how useful, intuitive, and beautiful climate science could be. And so he invited me to help create Probable Futures. 
So in a way, like I said, I'm the embodiment of Probable Future's mission, but I think my experience is really now being repeated with many people in different industries around the world. There are so many people that now have to start thinking about climate change and planning for it in the context of their work or other parts of their lives. So first thousands and then millions and then tens of millions and literally billions of people will have their own climate journey. And we built Probable Futures in the hopes that they could start that journey with a framework and an orientation that would serve them well, no matter where they lived or in the world or what kind of work that they do. So we had our journey and then created this resource to help people not have to do the things that we did, like reading journals or embedding ourselves in a climate science organization. Thank you both for that. I think what I heard, and I'm going to say it back to make sure that I understand it before we move on, is that the the insight was that here's this climate science and the models have, you know, maybe they've not been 100% accurate, but relative to models that we take as reliable and useful in other areas, they outperform, yet from an applicability standpoint, they aren't being applied. And instead of just pushing to make the models incrementally better, which we should keep doing. There needs to be more of a focus on taking what we already know and applying it. And that given the way that climate science organizations, that that is nobody's job. So there's both an opportunity and a a need. I I just want to stop there. Is is that right so far? Yeah, I would say that that's entirely right. I want to give a, one more piece of context that I actually think is really relevant given the communities you've been a part of, Jason. So I'll, I'll back up slightly, or actually in my case, 52 years. I was born outside Detroit and grew up in Michigan while Detroit was really failing in a way that was really painful. It was an enormous amount of suffering. So in the 50s and 60s, and in the from the 20s to the 50s, Detroit was the fastest growing, perhaps most prosperous city by some, in some ways in the world. And then by the late 60s, there were riots and real suffering. And throughout my childhood, I was born at the end of the 60s. Throughout my childhood, Detroit was a mess and tragic. And I grew up in an area in Ann Arbor where things were nice. And I was obsessed with this juxtaposition. Where I lived was forward-looking encouraging, hopeful, safe, and nearby were these places where I could have been randomly, but instead I was here and they were really radically different. And it made me become obsessed with two things. One is success and the other, or prosperity, and the other is catastrophe. And so I actually started out first as an engineer. I thought I would fix Detroit one car at a time or one factory at a time. I became an industrial engineer. I actually worked in a Ford factory. But I became more and more interested in the, the, the deeper problems. Partly Ford seemed unsolvable at the time. They made quite mediocre cars and had a pretty poor culture of quality. So I got interested in, well, what are the deeper sources of this culture? And so I, I actually worked and studied. I studied a bunch of places where in the late 80s, there was a robust middle class and great manufacturing. And so Japan, uh, Scandinavia, Germany, I went up moving to Germany to learn how did they have a real middle class? How did they not have a Detroit? How did they have And so I went back and forth over the ensuing years between doing research and working in communities that either succeeded or failed. And 
wound up eventually getting, I, I ran a small business lending program in central Russia for a while. I worked on the south side of Chicago for a while. I wound up getting a PhD in economic history and urban economics to understand how did we get here? And that whole time I was looking for insights about prosperity, insights about how to reduce suffering, insights about how to make the future better. And I never once considered the physical planet. Like it just did not cross my mind. And so when I started that work in 2012, I was still thinking about how to understand something that was tractable and that would be incremental or marginal, provide an insight. And instead, I discovered that climate stability was the reason for civilization. I went out to Stanford to meet Ken Caldera. And he's been on the show too, by the way. I'm, I'm aware. I'm giving you the shout out for your previous episodes. I'm helping you, uh, you know, <laughs> make hyperlinks here. So I had a nice lunch with Ken. And after lunch, I'm walking him back to his office. I said, I just, just want to understand one thing. It's right, isn't it? I think it's got to be right that civilization started about 10,000 BC because the climate stabilized. That until then, the climate was unstable, moving up and down, and humans never settled. And then about 10,000 BCE, the climate stabilized almost perfectly for what was then called, then by now called the Holocene, this perfectly stable climate period. And that's why people settled, because what came clear to me is that a predictable climate allows you to plan, and planning is the basis of civilization. If you can't plan, you're a nomad. If you can plan, you settle in place. You make you have intentions. You build things to last. You have dur duration. And he said, well, yeah, everybody knows that. And I was like, nobody knows that. Nobody knows that civilization exists because the climate is stable. And when the climate was not stable, we were all nomads. And he's like, yeah, that's kind of obvious. I was like, there's nothing obvious about that. Now that I know it, it's obvious. But that should have been in like sixth grade or seventh grade. And what I realized was that when I was in sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade or any of the grades, when I'm saying I want to be told about the world, scientists didn't know that. Scientists didn't know why humans had settled. I sure remembered being told around 9500 BCE, archaeologists have been able to figure out that people started building permanent structures and domesticating agriculture, some in Asia, some in Africa, some in other places, some in Central America. And it's a mystery why. And I was like, it should have been three weeks of the front of the paper saying mystery solved, civilization exists because of a stable climate. And so this idea that a stable climate underpins absolutely everything was so shocking to me. I had been going around looking for marginal ways to understand the world, insightful things to add to a conversation. I realized, no, I understand why everything is the way it is. It's because we could expect the future to look like the past. And that's the thing that I think is most important to understand here and clarifying about this work we're trying to do is it's not that it will be marginally warmer or there will be more hot days. It's that we will go from, we are going and have already gone likely from a permanently stable climate that we don't need to do anything to maintain to one that is unstable that we have to maintain. And so I use this analogy is that the climate is like a house. And amazingly, around 10,000 BCE, humans inherited a house that was awesome and required no maintenance. And we've behaved so recklessly now that the house needs maintenance. We need to constantly maintain the house, that climate, in order to live in it. And if we don't, we wind up homeless. And so we're now in a position where we have a house that needs work. If we go further, we're going to have a house that is constantly needing repair. 
That's what geoengineering is and will be. And if we go too far, we won't be indoors. We won't have control. It will be out of control. And so that transition went from this idea of an engineer, I'll, I'll find a small system I can control and that will make the world better, to economics, I'll just have a framework, to realizing, oh, all of this exists because of the atmosphere. The atmosphere created everything I care about and everything that everybody I know cares about. And so that idea of moving from stability to instability was what made me think, I got to quit my job. I got to find a way to make this public. Everybody needs to know this. This is not just an in insight or an advantage that should be had privately. This should be public. When you talked about how like we knew the science and and the science more or less predicted within ranges and, and things like that, and, and that what was missing was being applied, if you take out the word climate and just use the word science, has that same phenomenon been happening in other areas of, of science? And what I'm trying to get at is how unique is the climate problem versus other problems? And are there corollary problems that aren't climate that we can learn from in terms of the best ways to address them or address it? I think it's a great question. And I think the answer is yes, that there are corollary, there are comparable domains. I actually think social media is a comparable domain. I actually had the mixed fortune, I guess, or good fortune to, to sit next to Mark Zuckerberg during his roadshow in one of the meetings. And I said, do you understand human nature better because of your ability to observe humans up close? And he said, no, humans, people just like what they like and they like what their friends like. And that's, that's how they work. And I thought that's, that's an uninterrogated view of how humans work. That's on a set of assumptions. And not understanding those assumptions deeply is going to lead someplace you didn't expect. So I think there are ways that we think, oh, this is the way things have always been. And we can take them for granted. And so I think this idea of assuming, we take assumptions with us about the way the world works. And a lot of those assumptions are very circumstantial. And I didn't realize how many were, were the circumstance they depended on was the stable climate. But there are lots of other things where we say, well, this is the way it works. This is the way it is. And new information is kind of violent for that because the world is complex and it's really convenient if you can just assume a bunch of things away. I mean, that's the real benefit. I, I, you might be interested in, in this. I did a bunch of work on the history of language as one of my projects. And I discovered that the term someone else was basically never used in the English language until around the turn of the 20th century. Because someone else is really specific. It's not you. It's not me. It's not you know somebody else. Not anybody I can note, I can name. It's not the mayor. It's not the governor. It's not the priest. It's, it must be somebody though. There's somebody else. And it speaks to a level of complexity in society where I don't even know who does that. Like I don't know whose job that is, but somebody, someone else has to deal with this. And I think that that's a really comforting assumption is someone else is dealing with it. And so I think when you live in a world that has this someone else mentality as part of it, lots of parts of life are assumed to be under control, are assumed to be taken care of by somebody else. But there's one piece of climate that I think is really different, which is that it turned out, much to my surprise, to be intuitive. There's nothing like blockchain. It is nothing like CRISPR. There's nothing like DNA. It's basically like the, the metaphors are good. The greenhouse is a good metaphor. The blanket of the atmosphere is a good metaphor. But the other is like albedo. Sounds like a technical term. It's basically how reflective is the earth. If you have worn dark clothes on a sunny day and light clothes on a sunny day, you understand solar energy perfectly well. 
And so there are all these ways in which actually it turns out if you've been in a forest where it's cooler because the trees are respirating, you understand that. You understand that actually in hot places, there seem to be either swampy places or deserts. There's no middle ground in the tropics. Those are things that people can get in a way that is much more approachable than how the internet works. And so I think this is a case where delegating science to the scientists was unnecessary and probably deleterious. It was bad for civics, essentially, bad for social life, because it turns out to be intuitive. So there are definitely areas we hand off to the scientists in way, or experts, but this is one where we don't need to. The scientists have discovered it's all pretty intuitive. So I'm picturing almost like this Paul Revere, the British are coming moment where it's like, oh man, the, the climate was stable and our whole civilization was built on assuming that the climate will always be stable, yet the models are showing that it is rapidly destabilizing. So you have this aha, you say, well, everything that we've built, every way we operate is, is based on the assumption that a stable climate will continue. And if it destabilizes, it has implications for everything. So, so stop right there. Once, once that hit you between the eyes moment happens, then what? What do you do with that information? What do you hope others do with that information? How do we move forwards? So first of all, it's a great comparison, uh, not least because I was working seven blocks from the church where the lanterns were hung for Paul Revere. And I was working in a building that was built on the water in a new construction that I was quite sure would flood, but that the developers had assured my firm wouldn't flood. It actually happened to flood a week after I left the firm when tides came in and, and swamped the parking lot. And so my reaction was very, I never thought of that comparison, but it was very much, everybody needs to know this. And we need to figure out a way for everybody to know this. And if we lived in a world that had much better governments, they would already know it. It would already be part of curriculum. It would already be part of public messaging. It would be like clean water. It would be pretty much everywhere. And we'd be working to get it to everywhere it wasn't yet. But I realized, actually, I'm in, the, I'm in downtown Boston in the hub of so much information, and nobody around me knows this. So at least when Revere went out riding, everybody was thinking the British might come. But I was looking out of 25th floor window at construction on the Boston seaport that was already flooding during construction, thinking nobody knows. And I had to just pause. I had to stop my job and go talk to Allison and actually go talk to Tammy Dayton, who's now the creative director of Probable Futures, who runs a great design agency called Moth. And she and her team had done beautiful things not related to climate. And I said, we'll use your analogy again, I need a really good lantern. I need a really, really, really good lantern. I can't just ride around on a horse and yell it into people's windows. We need good design that will get across to people. We need storytelling that will be effective. We need a way to make people understand that this is not only necessary, but worthwhile. It's, it's valuable. You'll see the world in ways that are more meaningful. I was like, I need to collaborate with generalists who get this, people who can reach people, people who can help tell stories, people who can make this feel approachable so that they can listen, they can take it in. Because it's not easy. It's scary. It's a scary thing to learn. You know, that's why I reached out to Allison and to Tammy and to some others. And it's why also with Probable Futures, we decided, and Allison should talk about this, what the structure of the initiative was. 
in terms of who did what work and how we how we collaborated with people because we wanted to work with people who hadn't yet internalized this to see what experiences they had when they did. But to what end? Okay, so the science and then destabilizing. And so now we, we wanted people to vividly internalize it. But what do you hope that they do with this information once they internalize it? Sure. So I made the comparison earlier to money and information. And I make this comparison sometimes that a CEO of a company that had a big data leak or something 20 years ago, it was the, it was the IT guy's fault. And now it's, it's a corporate failure. The idea was to raise this perception of risk across society. And risk is not something that most people want to hold. It's actually not part of the modern vernacular very much. It's why I made the point about being a scholar of both success and catastrophe. And most people in the United States are inclined educationally towards just success. We needed to bring people along to understand the potential bad outcomes that could happen so that they would prepare for them, be motivated to limit them. And so the idea was we need to make this a vernacular in everybody's work. And that one way to do that was to start by collaborating with people in different walks of life, people in design, people in technology, people in business. Say, will you help us build this thing? And along the way, we'll get insights from you about how to use it. So we didn't know if there would be uptake principally by the educational sector or by governments in poor countries who needed to figure out how to provide insights for agriculture or insights for water supply. But we saw the need for that. And concurrently, we saw a need that I think is worth illustrating. We saw something happening at the same time, which is the creation of for-profit climate insight firms. And we thought those, it's fine that they exist. It's fine that there's a market, but there needs to be a public version of this for even for markets to work. And so the idea was, it's kind of like providing good data about the world in a way that everybody can access. And we don't judge in advance who's going to use it or how. We just want to make it widely applicable and available. So maybe, Allison, you could talk a little bit about whom we work with and why we chose to build it less as a company and more as an initiative. Just to go back for a minute to, to your last question, ultimately, what we want to do is help set norms and standards for assessing and acting upon the risks of climate change. And these norms span from business and and government decision-making to new social norms and new ways of living. So that is what we're trying to achieve with this. And there are, I'll point out three things in particular that we're doing to advance that. One, as Spencer mentioned, is just democratizing access to climate data and in particular climate model data. It is actually information that is in the public domain, but before probable futures, only a small slice of even the climate community knew how to access it, much less make it available in a way that was really understandable. So that really is just core part of the mission is just making it available, that 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 is a big advancement in and of itself. Two, training people to understand what the data means and what the context for it is. Learning about the fundamentals of a stable climate to civilization and also learning the fundamentals of earth systems. So, and then ultimately understanding the data and the limitations of the data and how to use the data. So, part of what we're doing 
we think of as training the trainers, educating people who can then bring this into different parts of society. And then the third thing is providing a new framework and a new way of thinking, which we call climate awareness. So Spencer has made this uh, reference a couple of times to climate as like information and money. It's in everything. And often the question around climate change is always, what do I do? And so we end up oftentimes with these lists of 10 things that the or- that organizations will put out, which are real, and we should do those things, but it ends up feeling unsatisfying. And the reason is, is because climate underpins everything. It is part of every aspect of life, and we can't distill that down to a list of 10 things. So what we encourage is something that we call climate awareness. So it's just really starts with paying attention to all of the ways in which a stable climate underpins our everyday life. And that may sound like a minor step, but what it is, is it's a seed of mindfulness about the earth and how it interacts with our human constructed world. And that seed can really quickly grow and help us see all of the opportunities that we have at work or at home or in our communities to not only prepare for climate change, but to mitigate the worst possible outcomes. If you're living day to day with an awareness and appreciation for what the stable climate brings us, ultimately that leads to action and it leads to a more organic action, we believe, than a list of here are the 10 things that you're supposed to do. So back to what Spencer mentioned earlier. So who are we actually working with? I mean, we built Probable Futures to be widely accessible and really universally applicable because the climate is universally applicable. We built it with the idea that anyone could use it and that it would be useful in any industry or any community. So that's a theory of change. You could think of it that way. And it was untested at the time. So we built Probable Futures with this idea. And now, you know, it's two thirds of the way done. And we are starting to see the outcome of that. So we're, we're just for the first time starting to hear back from people about how they're using it and where they're using it. And so it's being used, first of all, in classrooms, straightforwardly in traditional education, down from fifth grade to graduate students are using it. It has proven to be universally applicable across age ranges, which is kind of incredible. And from traditional educational settings to also professional development. So it's being used by organizations and different kinds of people who are trying to get up to speed on climate change for their professions. It's being used in newsrooms. Journalists are using it to support storytelling, also for agricultural planning, urban planning, architecture, advocacy efforts, and also communities that are working to get support for resiliency, local resiliency initiatives. So it is playing, we're starting to see the evidence now that this is really applicable across every industry and across every community. And that the orientation and the data that we provide doesn't have to change across those industries, that the same orientation works 
no matter where you live or what you work on, it's the same fundamentals. And then you can then take those fundamentals and start thinking about climate change and planning for it through the lens of your community, whether that community is an industry or a company or an actual physical community where people live. One way I might put it, Jason, is that we'll take another one of your guests, Adam McKay. When, when Adam McKay is asked, how did you get interested in this? He said, well, I read the IPCC report. And when Greta spoke at Congress, she was asked by a member of Congress, what should we do? And she said, you should read the IPCC report. I don't know if you've tried to read the IPCC report. Yeah, not easy. Part of the way we designed this was to give Greta a better answer so that she could say, spend a couple hours on probable futures and you'll get it. Spend a couple, or, and for Adam McKay to say, I could go here and I could get the idea. I don't need to wade through this thick jargon. And so making it easy for people to get started. That's our, our, where we are most effective, people who are starting their, their climate journey, whatever it is, and whether it's they chose to make it or somebody told them, this is your new job. This is your new reality. We spoke with a bunch of TV meteorologists who said, I never trained in this, but now I have to work on it. Now I have to have a view on it. This is really helpful for me. So as the light bulb goes off and people do internalize like, oh, I mean, everything's going to change, right? I think there's still a question of time horizons. And there's also a question of who gets affected when and Call me a cynic, but I just think if, you know, if a CEO needs to choose between like doing right for climate versus nailing earnings this quarter, or an employee needs to choose between doing what's right for climate or exceeding expectations with their product launch and driving their bonus and promotion path, or a consumer needs to choose between taking that vacation versus not flying or eating that delicious steak versus eating something that was made in a lab that, that I don't know anything about, that there's like a, well, yeah, for the collective good, but but the collective good is at odds with what's best for me, myself, and I. How do we break that that cycle and, and how far out do you need to stretch the time horizons before collective good and self-interest intersect? That's a great question. And I'm grateful for your framing, which I would say most of those are false choices. And I don't say that as a criticism, but they're framings of the problem in a way. I spent a lot of time, I spent many, many years with investors who are under, are under a lot of stress at all times. They're making hard decisions and they're living with those decisions. And what I experienced talking to them about climate change was for them to send them saying, you know, actually the decisions I thought were so hard they're not nearly as hard as this. This is actually a much harder decision. And in fact, the reason it's hard is because it goes home with them. I spoke at a Sone conference in New York, which you can see on YouTube. To, this is a huge hedge fund conference, and the, all the other speakers are essentially hedge fund managers. And afterwards, I was in the green room, and lots of hedge fund managers came up to me to talk to me, and all of them talked about their families. None of them talked about their portfolios. All of them talked about their vacations, their children. And so what happens is this is not something that can be easily compartmentalized. And for a lot of people who, are, who have been working in the last 50 years, the work environment was separate from the, the rest of their life. And keeping that separation is untenable. And so the challenge of this is changing your culture so that that trade-off you just gave as an example the trade-off of the CEO doing what's right for their children versus doing what's right at work. Never, that's not a trade off they ever faced before. Their presumption was, well, if I do the right thing at work, I'm bringing more money home for my kids. And so I'm making them better off. 
that's no longer the such obvious calculus, but they don't have any practice thinking in that those trade-off terms. And so having a culture where that starts to be a conversation that they have because their kids are asking them, the kids know. We've been getting questions from users. The quality of question is inversely correlated to age. Fifth graders ask the best questions. They're just so clear. So what I say to people is try to explain to your kid that we're making, we're increasing the chances of future suffering because it would be a little bit expensive not to. And now imagine as a parent, your kid giving the same argument. You know, why did you, why did you steal from the store? Why did you take Johnny's snack? Why did you do this thing? You say, well, you know, it would have been a little bit costly not to. It, it was easier. And you start realizing that having your work stay separate from the climate is not possible. And that culture needs to change. So that's true. The, the last example you gave is one about having a delicious steak versus something made in a lab that you don't know what it is. I think that's an interesting framing. And the reason is there are lots of better things to do when fo faced with a trade-off, but we're not used to making those trade-offs. And so what's been presented are trade-offs that feel weird. Like, don't worry, you're still going to have something that's steak-like. So your decision is between steak and steak-like, as opposed to, you know, there are lots of delicious things to eat in the world. And most cuisines in the world don't rely on steak. In fact, even the American diet didn't rely on steak not that long ago. So we've been recently acculturated to steak being the thing, right? We have steak houses everywhere. I don't know why they're called houses. They're never houses. But there are steak houses. And if wherever you go, you need to go to a steak house. So where I worked in finance was a, a LEED certified platinum building, supposedly the first one in Boston. And it had a steakhouse on the ground floor because, you know, it's grade A office space needs to have a steakhouse. There's like, okay, we saved all this money and all of this energy building a LEED certified building. And then we defaulted to this norm of you got to have a Smith and Walensky's on the base on the ground floor to make it a real office building. They could have given that over to like, there is a great Turkish chef in, in Boston and you could have put an amazing Turkish restaurant on the bottom floor. It would have been more tasty than the steak, but instead it's like, you know, do I get a burger or an impossible burger? Like there are lots of things to eat, but we need to change the trade-offs so that it isn't work and home are separate and the choices between steak and lab. And so this is, it may seem farcical. It may seem fantastical, but this is a cultural change that has to happen. This is a counter-cultural change we're asking for, we're hoping happens. And we have a belief that's grounded in our own experience and the experience of people we've collaborated with is that we don't have to live this way. We could live better. We may live in a compromised climate. We could live a lot better than the way we live now. Those simple assumptions we made about how we should follow various trends, we can reinvestigate those trends. We could live differently. And so broadening that conversation about what's possible invokes imagination. And it brings me back to my point about electric vehicles versus Mad Max. We need storytellers to tell us stories about the near future and the choices we're, between which we're choosing. We need Hollywood to make better scripts. There are so many TV shows right now, prestige TV about space, and there are none about the prospective climate we're going to live in. 
We need stories that say, actually, this is the trade-off we're facing. These are the choices we can make. These are ways we can live with climate change versus I'm opting out. I'm going to create a new world in a different planet that probably has no atmosphere or magnetic field. So it's blasted by cosmic rays and there's no greenhouse effect. And But that's missing. And so we're hopeful that there will be some mix of cultural prompts that come from kids asking their parents to regulations forcing those CEOs and leaders to political parties feeling pressure to take the future into account. And if the worst thing we do is help young people understand more dramatically how much they need to wrest control from the old people, that's also a good thing to have done. One of the things I say to senior leadership is if you're making a decision in a corporate or governmental setting and there's no one under 40 in the room, you're probably making a bad decision. Because the people who will live with the consequences of this aren't in the room. If I could just add one thing to that, Spencer talked about that we need to change the culture. Changing the culture is not a choice at this point. The climate is changing. Life is going to change. It's not going to be the same as what we've had for the past 50, 75 years. So staying the same is not going to happen. So we have the choice to either engineer something that looks like what we've had for the past 50 or 75 years, or we could use that opportunity to re-envision how we live, to update how we live, to evolve how we live in order to live within the constraints that the earth and the climate provides. The idea that we can continue with never-ending growth of all kinds is not consistent with the physics of the planet. And so we can live in really wonderful ways living within those constraints. And that is what we will need to do to continue on. So we are faced with this transition. It's happening one way or another. And we can use the transition to make life better, or we can use it to engineer something that we haven't even been doing for all that long. I love the vision. And I also, it's like all this consumer behavior change work is irrelevant. What we really need is government and policy. It's like, well, how do you think the government and how do you think the policy comes about? But I can't help but think on the one hand, time is our enemy and we need to move fast. And so then it's like, well, are we going to get there faster by trying to tear down the system that exists and start from scratch or by take the system that we already have and, 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 or systems, you know, the system of capitalism, the system of democracy and, and try to incrementally get them to move in the right direction. Do, you know, do we work with the oil majors and get them to incrementally move in the right direction? Or do we try to cut them out at the knees, right? And and there's a bit of inconsistency where it's like, on the one hand, we have so little time, it's an emergency. It's like, okay, well, let's say it is an emergency and I'm not disputing, shouldn't we work with what we've got, right? And, and, And how do you determine when to work with what we've got and when to go rogue? GoRogue.org is not our organization. You know, our, our approach is entirely to work with the organizations and the, the institutions that we have. It's why even our branding was meant to look good on a, on a cloud of logos that included Goldman Sachs and Bloomberg, 
or look good on a cloud of logos that included Extinction Rebellion. Like both are part of the culture that we need to collaborate with and empower. And so what I would say is that the existing, I mean, this is partly why I have hope about this, which is that as an economic historian, I can tell you capitalism has worked in lots of different ways. Markets have worked in lots of different ways. There are ways to turn around even big ships if you change the rules by which they operate and their priorities. And so you have you need regulatory change. I think one of the biggest catalysts for change likely is actually industry groups, where industries decide for themselves, all right, we need to change the rules by which we operate in order for all of us to survive and all of us to thrive. One of the most interesting phone calls I've gotten is from one of the largest hedge funds in the world reaching out saying, we really support your work. And I said, can you tell me why that is? They said, because we really love capitalism. And we understand that the more the climate changes, the less capitalism there will be. Because the more chaos there is, every time there's a crisis, the government expands. And so the people who think we they like to have free markets, those free markets, which aren't actually, they are regulated, they are underpinned by institutions. The stability that enables latitude to do whatever you want comes originally from kinds of expectations about the future. British merchants sold material to the Nazis until the government stopped them, until the UK nationalized them, because it was the right thing for shareholders to keep making sales until the government said no more. Some of those lessons have been learned by some of the smartest capitalists in in the world who say, if we let climate change continue, we're not going to be given the trust of society to operate freely. And so some amount of forbearance, some amount of self-governance, and some amount of advocacy for good regulation should be well within the scope of what businesses do. And I'll give an example of this, which is that there didn't used to be fire departments anywhere in the world. Those, those didn't exist. The history of creating fire departments was caused because the insurance industry got together and said, we're not underwriting any more cities until you build a fire department. The first building codes, zoning laws were in response to the Great Chicago Fire, the last big city fire. So San Francisco burned down There are these great documents in the San Francisco Public Library, the first great fire, the second great fire. There are five great fires in in San Francisco. And then after the great Chicago fire, insurance companies said, we have to regulate real estate. And people said, oh my God, regulating real estate is anti-capitalist. But actually it created the real estate industry and we haven't had a big fire since. So there are ways of having regulation that reduce risk and increase collaboration that are well within the scope of, some of is well within the scope of memory. But there has to be some interest in maintaining the system in order to thrive. And so there needs to be some amount of encouraging oversight, encouraging collaboration, encouraging cooperation. But that's within the scope of the institutions we have. If everybody's just arbitraging, it's hopeless. But if there's some amount of coordination, even between institutions that just have norms, if you think how many businesses have benchmarks and norms, those benchmarks and norms are more powerful than any one CEO. And so I think there are ways that the incumbent institutions can change enormously, partly just by incorporating some new information, making some organizational changes that are already in their best interest, responding to customers and people who want change in ways that take advantage of the speed and, as you say, the power of the existing institutions. And so I think that harnessing what exists 
this is why I make the point, like we didn't used to work the way we work now. There are lots of surprises. If I had offered you in 1999, a vision of how industry would work today, there's lots of things you would have said, well, that's super unlikely or even inconceivable. Well, they were governed partly by luck, partly by regulatory changes, partly by accidents. We can have more purpose about those accidents, regulatory changes, and luck in ways that embody and or empower existing institutions and existing leaders. And yeah, they need to step up a bit more and have a slightly different conviction or, or conception of their work. But I don't think we need to, we don't need mass revolt. We need change in frameworks and change in rules and change in mindsets. Those happen naturally. We're just trying to accelerate them. And as Allison said, they're going to happen one way or the other. You talked before about specialization and how you know, no one was kind of looking across. And I mean, the same thing you could argue is happening with people working on climate, right? You have an organization who exists and their, their sole reason of existence is to pass a specific carbon tax uh, or a carbon dividend proposal, or, or you've got another one that exists specifically because there's 10 million eligible voters who climate is their top issue and, and they don't vote. So that organization exists just to, just to get them to the polls. And, and that's how they exist. There's another one that exists specifically just to influence big companies and get them to advocate for climate forward policy because they're talking about cleaning up their footprints and their net zero commitments. But like if policy is the lever that matters, why aren't they using their might to organize that policy? But it's, it's very specific. And then you kind of rightfully it, not knock the top 10 lists of like, you know, do this and do that. But like the advantage of those top 10 lists is at least, or the benefit is at least it's tangible in terms of knowing that you're having an impact. Whereas what you're talking about essentially is winning hearts and minds holistically. So it almost, it sounds more like brand. Like if I'm doing ad dollars, how do I know if my advertising spend is helping with my brand equity? For example, it's just brand equity. It's a harder thing to measure. How do you measure whether the work that you're doing is, is having an impact? I'll let Alison answer that question. She's more thoughtful about it than I am. I would just say one thing, which is we don't think everybody in the world needs to become a generalist. We just think there need to be some generalists. And so the, the absence of so the, being a resource for all the specialists who have their own ways of making an impact in the world, if everybody spent their days the way Probable Futures does, we wouldn't get anything done. But we need some people to do the things we're doing in order to empower those people. So some of those organizations you talk about, we actually know them directly. And they're using our materials in part to galvanize people, in part to organize that. And so our, our idea is we're helping them along. But Allison, you want to talk about how we measure success or how we think about success? I wasn't suggesting that you don't value those, but with those, it's kind of like red light, green light, like, or like check mark or X mark, like did the thing get passed? Did you drive more voters to the polls? And so as a generalist, how do you know? Because you're so mission driven and you've spotted this gap, but just how do you know if it's working? So, I mean, the one thing that I would say about those, the one thing that I would say about everything that has been tried thus far, there has been progress. Also, emissions are still going up. So nothing has, the trajectory has not changed. So I think that tells us that we don't necessarily know what works. There are a lot of things being done. I believe a lot of progress. There's certainly much, much more awareness that there than there used to be. And climate change is creeping up on the priority list. And it hasn't yet translated into the thing that is actually measurable, which is 
carbon concentration, CO2 concentration of the atmosphere. You know, that is a fundamental part of our philosophy is that we're, we're not going to say that we know what works. We don't think that anyone actually knows what works. We're all just doing what we can to try and push this forward. This is the thing that we knew how to do. And there is a thought leadership aspect to it for sure. And there's also a really practical aspect to it, which is making the data available and helping people understand how to use it. So one of the most basic ways that we can measure success is just, are people using it? Is, is the information, the framework, the, the things that we're making available, helping people to incorporate climate awareness into their lives? And we've just started to collect that information, as I mentioned. And so far, we're seeing that it that it is useful and that people are using it in professional contexts and in personal contexts. We have heard from people that have said, I'm trying to decide where I want to move to in response to climate change. And I've used your resources to do that. That is just one really practical thing. And the other thing that we pay attention to that also comes from feedback from the community is, is the work that we're putting out into the world good? I mean, the only thing that we really can control as an organization is, is the quality of work that we put out, how well we present and translate the information so that people can actually use it, how well people understand the stories and the context that we provide. So as an organization, we focus on the quality of our work above everything else. Things probably helpful to say here is that I was very fortunate to work in finance essentially by accident. I was I was hired in 1999 by an organization that had done poorly in Asia and wanted somebody to figure out what would happen in Asia after the Asian financial crisis. And they took a chance on me. It was a lark, really. But taking a lark in finance starting in 1999 made it possible for me to accidentally earn a lot more money than I thought I would ever have because finance became such a big part of the world. And so this is what seems reason seems like the right thing to my wife and me to do is use our money to do this as a way of participating in the world. And so we don't have metrics that say, well, we're, we're failing if we don't do this, or we're, we're succeeding if we do this, but it feels like the right thing to do. And what I would say about it is, it may not work right away. We're trying to build it, as Allison said, about quality in a way that when there is action, when somebody comes to it, it will still be great. It will still be useful to them. And so this is, yes, there's urgency. There's still going to be urgency in three years. There's still going to be urgency in eight years. There's still going to be urgency in 10 years. And so we have a commitment to maintain these models, maintain this for the long run, have it be there. I'm the owner of messagesinbottles.org also. I started buying websites are like, I don't know if anybody's going to come. It's like throwing a bottle into the ocean with a message in it and somebody's going to come to the shore one day and say, oh, I'm not alone. And so if we can create a community, you talk about your own community. If we can create a good community and we can be helpful to people, whether it's today or tomorrow in six months or 12 months. We're trying, and it feels like the right, a, a good way to participate. And so far, it's been encouraging. And we don't have all the answers, but this was a thing that didn't exist that felt like we could make it and it would be useful. And so far, we're hopeful about it. 
The last thing I'll add is that anecdotes are real too because of Spencer's network and networks that I'm involved in. We've had the opportunity to help educate people in leadership positions. And we have seen this framework change the way that they think about climate change. And we have seen some of those organizations be very vocal about the need for change when they weren't necessarily before. So one of the things that we focus on as an organization is is working with the people and organizations that have the most ability to spread this way of thinking. And even when it's just an individual person that thinks differently, that is that is a form of success. Last thing I'd say is, I don't have a po- podcast. We don't have a podcast, but I write a, a letter on every solstice and every equinox. And the mailing list keeps growing. And it's it's a mailing list we're proud of. There are a lot of people on there who are in important positions, positions of power, who pass the letter along. I welcome anybody to sign up to get it. And it's the sign of a community growing. It's a mix of uh, all kinds of people, but it includes people in places where we don't know how they came to us, but they reach out and say, this is valuable. And so there are small private ways, but there are ways that anybody can join up and, and participate in the way that you're growing your community. So it's been in the same way that I guess you wake up some days and think, I don't know whether I'm making a difference here. But then somebody reaches out. We encourage anybody to reach out who's, who's inclined to. The last thing I want to poke on is there's the kind of defensive catastrophe avoidance of like the way we've been doing things isn't going to work for the future. You know, we assume things are stable. They're rapidly destabilizing. Everything needs to change. Like that to me, it might be the truth, but it's a, it's a defensive, it's a catastrophe avoidance. It's to put out a fire. And then there's another, which is another way of framing it, which is an aspirational vision of the future, one of abundance, one of more equality, more inclusiveness, higher quality of life for everybody, more innovation, more personalization, more something we can really get behind and feel good about and and work towards. So, so I have two questions. One, what is your unfiltered view of what is in store for us and our children and our children's children? Like, are our best days behind us as a as a species? And then two. No matter what your answer is for, is for number one, like, does the truth sell? If we actually want to inspire action, like, even if that's true, is it actually effective to say it? So the first thing that I would say that's the truth is that Earth is still the best planet in the universe. It still can sustain lots of life, including human life. It is an incredible and amazing place. And even in a changing climate where we will lose things, we will lose things that we have had in the past, it can still be a wonderful place. There are still a lot of things to save. And there's still many, many ways that we can live well in that world. That is the truth that we have an incredible place. And we have the opportunity to keep having it be pretty incredible, even if it has less diversity than it did before. And one of the things that we often talk about that you might not hear a lot about is just the pace of change. We can keep a lot more of the diversity of life on Earth if 
the climate changes much more slowly than it's changing now. We'll lose a lot more if we keep the same trajectory and um, the same pace of change. So that that is our vision, is that this is still the best place to live, and we have a lot that we can keep. I would say a couple of things about that Green Tyler with Allison. So two things. One is young people in the future, young people when they grow up, will look back and see the people who are now adults as the last people who to not pay attention to the physical world. I think they'll feel badly for us because living in ignorance of the physical world is a weird way to live. It's totally a historical. And so I think we can live so much better by just paying attention to the physical world we live in. It's one of the things that's most consistent across the people we've met and worked with is the discovery. And I, I'm sure you've seen this. People discovering that they live in a climate makes them more aware of the physical world around them in a way they had been not paying attention to before. And so this idea of can we have more abundance in the future? Well, we can live better. More and better are not synonyms. And so there are ways of living that I think can be much richer and much more fulfilling. And so a couple couple things I would say is that first, there is a big difference between anxiety and fear. And specifying what to be afraid of is very clarifying. We work quite a lot with psychologists and psychiatrists on this, which is that most people have climate anxiety. Anxiety is an emotion that's unstructured, that's like, it's bad. Well, anxiety does not prompt activity. It, pr it prompts watching television. And fear says, I know what the problem is. I can name it. I can prepare for it. And I can do something about it. And what most people have is a vague sense that Mad Max is out there, a vague sense that Miami will become uninhabitable, as opposed to a specific sense of, oh, this is the way I relate to the world. This is how it will change. I can value that and I can decide whether to prepare for it, to change for it. I think that there's a way of saying, I need to articulate what the problem is in order to have an emotion about it that's clarifying. So does the truth sell? Well, we're not selling. It's for free. People can use it or not use it. Do people incorporate the truth? They incorporate it if it is structured and if it's something that prompts a coherent, consistent sort of actionable emotion and actionable reaction. And anxiety doesn't do that. Vaguely afraid that the future is worse or vaguely having the notion that our best days are behind us is totally unconstructive. We have friends, my wife and I do, who are Greek. And we walked up to the Acropolis and I asked my friend, what's it like to have all these statues around? He says, it sucks. You're told from birth that the best Greeks lived 3,000 years ago and you'll never be as good as them. That's a terrible mindset. We have no such view. Like the best people probably are ahead of us. And people living the most interesting lives are probably ahead of us. But they're probably not people who believe that the best way to live is to ignore risk. And they're probably not people who think they can just take the physical world for granted. And they're probably not people who think humans are so miraculous that even when living on a totally dystopian planet, we'll engineer our way out of it. I, I was an engineer. It's hard to build an automobile. It's really hard to build a climate. And we inherited a really nice one. And so my argument would be the future is going to be more climate aware. We can get to that future much more quickly. Or we can make people be climate aware because it's how they survive is by being climate aware. One way to think about this in your terms, maybe, Jason, is we're trying to minimize the number of people who have to work on climate. 
And so having people all work, having more people work on climate now means there will be more kids in the future who can work on whatever they want to. And if we don't work on it now, everyone's going to have to work on it in the future. And so we have the opportunity to act now in a way that changes how people internalize and live in the physical planet in the future. They can either live on its terms or be constantly engineering it, or they can we can modify we can moderate what we're doing so that they can have a much wider scope of freedom. And so I think that those choices are still ahead of us, but they don't include being ignorant of it or just hoping that Silicon Valley solves it, hoping that Elon Musk solves it, hoping that there's some silver bullet. I mean, this American term of a silver bullet is a is a great expression. It's a magical property of a form of violence that kills the thing that we're afraid of. We could just learn to live with it and moderate it. It's a little bit like aging. Are your best days behind you, Jason? I don't know. You're not going to be 20 anymore. I don't know how old you are, but you're not going to be 20 anymore. There's some things will be different, but you may enjoy it more. And so this kind of living on the terms that the physical world gives you, I think can be pretty great. Expecting everything from it is probably setting yourself up for disappointment. And so I don't know whether that sells or resonates, but it's more consistent with the kind of stories people told themselves before the last 30 years for the length of civilization. It was a form of balance, a form of risk awareness, a form of preservation. Those are pretty great ways to think about life, and they tend to be pretty healthy. And so I have a strong sense that the people who come after us, the people who live in the future, whatever we leave them, are likely to have pretty awesome lives in part because they've internalized ways of living that are just more honest, that may be overly romantic or overly hopeful. So for anyone that is intrigued by this discussion and wants to learn more about the tool sets that you've built and are building, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can visit probablefutures.org and reach out to, to me if you are thinking about a specific way that you could use the tools or that your community or organization could use it. We are, the platform is not complete yet. We're two thirds of the way done. We've launched the heat volume, the water volume and land will be launching in the fall. So once we complete the platform in that way, we will be looking for organizations and people to partner with and to help them incorporate both the data and this way of thinking into their systems and their community. So their systems could be something like software, where the data goes into software for a certain community that works in a certain way, or it could look like training sessions, or it could look like thought partnership or publishing and thought leadership. So we are very open to different ways of helping people incorporate this. And so we are very, we, we welcome uh, people reaching out. So my email address is asmart at probablefutures.org. And in addition to utilizing the tools and working with you to figure out how to apply them, how else can we or or listeners support your work or be helpful to you as you're scaling the organization? The feedback of any kind is always welcome. And that's not just a, a truism. It's also the case that this is what we're doing. We're trying. It's, it's not proven. 
as you said, Jason, it's not clear it will work. So people telling us, hey, this is working or hey, this makes me nuts or if you did this would be helpful. That's great. We're excited about that. We have some alpha users of components of it. We've had good feedback from other people. Any input is is helpful. I think the other is understanding how people are incorporating climate into their work now newly is very helpful. So an example would be that teachers have reached out and said, we're not even sure how where this should exist in a classroom. Like what class should climate change be in? Can we talk about how to do that? And so we're collaborating some with school principals and with administrators because just putting it in earth science is pretty limiting. And so how do you, people who are experimenting, we'd love to experiment together and we're happy to designate resources for that and find time for that. So people who have experiments they want to conduct with where, how do they get climate awareness into their institution or their uh, or their community we're interested in? And then people who are trying something different and think that we're either making a good choice or a bad choice, we're really uh, grateful for that kind of outreach. And lastly, like you like for yourself, we're trying to grow this community. Just even saying hello is great. Um, we're glad to know people are out there. And so they're pretty mundane, but they're they'd all be helpful. Well, we've covered so much ground. Are there any parting words you'd like to live, leave listeners with that we've not already covered? One of the things we talk about is that we're not optimistic, but we're hopeful. Optimism is a sense that things will work out, but I'm not a part of it. I don't know how, but somehow it'll just work out. Hope is a much more active idea that there are ways to do this. There are ways to move forward. I can't articulate what they are. They may not be more of everything. They may not be great in a way that I anticipate or can imagine. But we are quite hopeful that there are that the future can be very good. And so we're trying to increase the odds of that. But this difference between passively thinking, well, the future will be what it will be versus I'm engaged in it and I'm hopeful for it, even if I don't know exactly what to hope for, I think is a, a mindset that we we find encouraging and nourishing when when days are hard. And so happily share that, which is at least partly borrowed from the author, Rebecca Solnit. What about you, Allison? Any parting words? My parting words would be that some uh, a theme that we've repeated often here, but climate change doesn't just exist in the domain of science. And I encourage everyone to learn about it. It really, it's beautiful. It's fascinating. And it can change your life too. So I would encourage anyone who kind of feels like maybe they're sitting on the sidelines or that they don't have a way to engage with it to to engage with it. And that's what Probable Futures is is for. So we can all build our own climate literacy. And I get a lot of satisfaction empowering people to do that. Only you are going to know how increased heat is going to impact your life. Only your community will know how the changing patterns of precipitation are going to impact the industries in your community or the cultural practices in your community. So no one can do that thinking for you. So that's why we all need this climate literacy, because we are the best people to think through those futures for ourselves. Well, that's a great point to end on. And, and this was a, a really wonderful discussion. So th thank you both for 
coming on the show and for all the work that you're doing. Likewise. Thank you for what you're doing, Jason. It's been a great source of encouragement to us, and uh, it's a treat to spend time with you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.